Hello again. Okay, so um, we are in the middle of looking at kind of a walkthrough of Ephesians 4 through 6, which is talking about how we live as followers of Jesus in this world. Um, It is not, if you follow one person while being Jesus and who it is that you're following is totally freeing and empowering and awesome, it's also limiting in the sense of if you're following one, you're not following that or that. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is talking about the ways, can I say, of the culture of heaven. You and I are born into our culture. I was born into one culture. There are some people who are born, we're all probably American born, I don't know. We're cultures all around the earth, each of which have different aspects of beauty and lovely things and some things that are good, some things that aren't good. But ultimately, there is ways to Jesus' kingdom. And as his followers... We want to know those ways and walk in them. And so um, some of it is not popular, what we're about to preach. And I don't mean to be like, you know, Rambo up here and say, well, I'm going to say the hard stuff to you. But the reality is we want more than being popular. We want Jesus. We want his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, so we, without apology, love his ways. And that's what we're looking at. And uh, core to this church is this scripture, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. It's what Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry. He said that the spirit of the Lord God was upon him because the Lord had anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. And that word for poor does not just mean people who don't have a lot of money in their pocket. It means people who have need. And uh, how many of you have ever had a need? So it's, it's, in other words, it's the gospel to humans. The poor. Some of us just don't know we're poor. But those who know they have need, that's where the gospel takes root. And that scripture goes on to describe that the poor become those who become rebuilders of ruins. Now, I don't want to overdo this thing of Detroit, because like all over America, people think of Detroit as like the city of ruins. I don't want to talk about that too much. But the reality is most people in this room have a heart to see something rebuilt in Detroit. And it goes a lot further than just rebuilding some buildings. As cool as I think the Hudson building coming up and being the new tallest building in the city, I want to see people rebuilt. People know their father and and come into his ways. And to rebuild ruins in this city, so much of the brokenness in this city is because of a shattering of the idea of biblical family. You grow up in a strong, healthy family, so much of the problems in our lives are sorted just by having a loving mom and dad who are, who are committed to one another and love me. And to have that, that sense of security and basis, that's what we, we need as the church in this city to start there. If you go down to uh, where Woodward kind of runs into um, Jefferson, you may notice a statue. They, they modeled it after me. It's a, it's a man who's kind of sitting kind of cross-legged with, with his hands. You've seen it. It looks like me, right? Yeah, okay. Marilyn knows about it, yeah. So that's the, stat, that's the spirit of Paul Nichols, the, the spirit of Detroit. And in one hand, he's got 
an orb representing God. In the other hand, there's a little family, if you've ever looked closely at it. And the, the artist says that he was expressing that God is most fully expressed in the earth through family, the noblest of human relationships. And I think that that is such a, a profound and even prophetic picture of this city because it's broken families that is actually the, at the root of so much of the brokenness in the city. And if we want to be the people of God to really see rebuilding of ruins, we need to see strong, healthy families. And if we're going to see that, let it begin with the people of God, his church. And on that basis, that's why we're getting in today to, help, to a continuation of healthy families. So in this room, even I, I was loved by my dad. My dad, if anything, was not hard enough on me. He actually did me a disservice in some regards for not disciplining me enough. However, a lot of humans don't have that. They have the opposite. All of us had imperfect moms and dads. All of us need to have a renewing of our mind to see family as God had intended. And so I'm, I want to pray as we get into this and just ask God to give us a spirit of revelation to undo what has been done. Any area of hurts and, and damage even that may have been done that we could become a beacon of light into this awesome city that others could see and follow and be healed. Can we pray? Father, we pray. We even submit ourselves to you, Jesus. We want to be yoked with you and rebuilding ruins. Thank you, Jesus, that you would look at us, the poor, and use us to raise us up and to make us to become rebuilders of ruins. And Lord, we don't say that arrogantly, but we do recognize that that is your plan for us. And we submit and surrender and say, Lord, let, let families in this city be rebuilt. Let them be healed. Let them come into your order and your pattern and your ways. And Lord, we pray that you would start with us. Let our houses come into order. This morning we pray, Jesus, that you would cause us to hear your voice. There's so many different ways that this could apply to so many lives in this room. And we just want to know what you're saying to each of us this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes and fill us with grace and, and, and power to walk out what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here it is. It begins, everything in the kingdom of heaven begins with love. It begins with Jesus as the head of the church, but it actually doesn't even begin with Jesus as the head of the church. Before he's the head of the church, Jesus is the savior of the church. Before Jesus was ascended into the highest place that there is, he first went to the lowest place and hung on a cross. Having no sin, he died for all of our sins. It took the punishment that we would never have to be punished if we put our faith in him. That's love, am I right? And because he went to the lowest place, the scripture says that God has exalted him into the highest place, meaning that it is on the basis of sacrificial love, not domineering authority, sacrificial servant-hearted love that Jesus' authority is established. Take that. In that context, his church representing him on the earth is a pattern of that same picture 
that in the families of the church, which is what Paul begins to address at the end of Ephesians 5 and on into the beginning of Ephesians 6, he's addressing families, and he's saying that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is the savior of the body. The idea there is that the husband has authority delegated to him by Jesus, who is the highest in all authority, but the whole context is love, not domineering authority. Anybody ever known a, a, a husband? See, I grew up in Atlanta, down in the South, and maybe it's the same, I don't know, but down in the South, you have this like real conventional idea of like the, the man who's the head of the household and submit to me, wife, especially when you go out into kind of like the rural areas. Maybe I'm, I'm going into a dangerous territory with this already. What I'm saying is I've seen a very perverted form of being the head of the wife. That's not the picture of Jesus. Jesus hung on a cross, having nothing to do of his own interest, only serving the bride. And in that, he becomes her head, and that's the picture for husbands to be the head of the household. And in that picture, children are called to submit to their parents. So what we're going to be looking at right now it's not just family. Some of you don't, aren't married. Some of you don't have kids. Some of you aren't children of parents. So what, what we're talking about are principles of the kingdom that apply across the board in our relationships. So hear it from that perspective, but also hear it from the perspective of some of you will get married. Some of you will have kids. And we want to fill ourselves with the word of God so that we are equipped to walk out the will of God in that day. So if you'll look with me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to start with children with parents. Ephesians 6, 1 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy life, a long life on the earth. First thing that we want to point out here is that Paul is saying that it may go well with you. So children are to honor or to obey their parents, and then it says to honor their parents. But the idea every time in Scripture of honor is that it would go well with the person who's honoring, in this case, with the child. So in other words, this isn't about that it would go well with the parents, honor them so you make their job easier. Although being honored, Peter, my son, if he's dishonoring me, it does make my job harder. But it's not about making my job harder or easier. It's about what's best for him. God calls him to honor. Now, there are two, there's a practical reality to this, and there's a spiritual reality. Why would it go well with Peter to honor me as his father? Why would it go well with you to honor authority? Why? why? There's, there's a practical and there's spiritual, and they kind of intertwine. Practically speaking is that in the economy of heaven... He has designed generations. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generational thinking God. He's designed things that one generation learns some things. And so if they can pass what they learn on to the next generation, that next generation doesn't have to learn the same things. They don't have to go through the same school of hard knocks to learn the same lessons. The, or, or not even the same, same just learn skills, learn Whatever it is that you learn, learn how to tie your shoes, learn how to get a job, learn how to whatever, social skills, all of those things, everything that I pick up 
as one generation should be something that Peter and John David don't have to pick up. They can learn from me so that they can stand on my shoulders and go further than I ever did. That making sense? It goes well with you and you live life on the earth because you learn of the lessons that a previous generation learned so that you don't have to, you can go further. That's the first practical, just very earthy reality of how this thing works. Can I say, when God says to children to honor their parents, they're speaking to children whose parents are imperfect. He doesn't say, honor your mom and dad when they're honorable, when, they're, when they've got it together, knowing full well that they have sinned, they're imperfect, they're going to do things that are wrong, he still calls the children to honor and submit to their parents, that it might go well with them. But then there's the spiritual reality, and the spiritual reality is, is this. There's a spiritual principle of how you position your heart in, when you honor. It, it is exercising this thing called humility. Humility says, I need help, I need to learn, I don't know everything, and that I'm able to see that this person needs to say, speak something to me. Anybody remember, when I was like 15, you may my dad went from being this guy who like knew a lot to being this guy who knew nothing. And then sometime after I got married in my early 20s, all of a sudden I was like, maybe you know something, a little bit, a little bit. Honor so that you express humility because humility is the, is the space where God flows in your life. James 4, 6 says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're wondering what that's like, grace, think of it this way, grace is like, we'll be out on the Detroit River later and we'll see some sailboats, Grace is like the wind that blows into the sail of that boat and causes it to just flow. The boat's not generating the energy. The wind in the sail is blowing the boat. Grace is that thing that blows into your sail and causes you to move forward in God's purposes for you. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. Humility is such an important part of God. It's like a magnet for the power of God working in your life when you position yourself. So it's a spiritual principle. And um, even Jesus submitted to something of the previous generation. If you, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're not going to put it up there, but Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. Now, John the Baptist, John the Baptist was not Peter. I mean, he wasn't Jesus' dad, right? He wasn't even of the previous generation. He was a cousin of Jesus. He was the same age by like six or nine months. And, uh, but the thing is, John the Baptist represented what God was doing in the earth right before Jesus. And therefore, he was a previous spiritual generation to the ministry of Jesus. The Bible says that John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. And so if he went before Jesus, then it could be that Jesus would even need to submit to and receive from something of what John was doing. John was baptizing and calling people to repentance. Obviously, Jesus can't repent if he's never sinned, but listen to this. Matthew 3, 14, but John tried to deter him when Jesus came to be baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? 
And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. Why did, John, why did Jesus feel like he had to be baptized by John? Because he had to submit everything that God had ever done from the beginning, from the beginnings of his dealings with humanity, even starting with Noah, and then to Abraham. He had done things that built upon itself that one generation had to receive from the next they, Noah led to this, and then Moses, I mean, Abraham receives a call, and then Moses comes and receives the law, and they built step by step right up until John the Baptist, and Jesus, even Jesus, the Son of God, was not saying, I'm exempt, I'm God. He submitted to that which came before him. So uh, just, to, just to tell a little story quickly how this has worked practically in our lives. And I know we're not just talking about parents here. We're talking about honoring any leader that God has set in our lives. And uh, when we, when Minda and I moved into Dublin, Georgia in uh, 2001, we knew that we were called to be trained in our calling in this church that was based there, out of which was birthed kind of like a, a, a network of churches. And we knew that the guy, the, the man who was leading the church and his wife, that they felt that their biggest and highest call in, in life was to be a sp spiritual mother and father to, to people. And so we moved there, and we, we, we felt like that was, we were going to go there to be trained and to be developed. And the conversation that we had, I've mentioned this before, is that in 18 to 36 months, we'll be, they, they felt like we would be released to go be a part of a church plant with a group of people. And... Um, and so when we moved to Dublin, we were looking for a house, and uh, there were all these houses that we were looking at for rent at that time, and they were like overpriced, or they were just like filthy and bad, and there was this one last house on our list of houses to see that we felt like we needed to go see, but I was like, there's no way. Like, this house is so inexpensive, there's no way it's going to be good. And we rock up, and, uh, and I, I get out of the car, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, where's the problem? You know, where's the leaky roof? Where's the, and it's like clean, it's nice, it's good condition, it's beautiful, it's the best house we've seen all day, and it's like two-thirds of the rent. Like, what's the issue? So we went to the uh, rental company, and we asked, could we see it? We'd love to actually go inside. I'm like, sure, and, and I walk through, and I'm like, what, what's the problem here? And we walk outside to the, to the mailbox, and I just look at the address, and it's 212 North Calhoun Street. And in my spirit, when I saw that number, 212, I knew there was significance to this number. Anybody ever had that where you just, the Holy Spirit inside of you witnesses and you just kind of know? There's something about that. And I, and I even said to Minda, I feel like there's something about that number, 212. We went ahead and we, we, uh, we rented that unit, not unit, that house. And we started to look up in the scriptures anywhere where there is a chapter 2, verse 12. Is God saying something? And we got to 2 Kings, chapter 2, verse 12. And... That was the scripture where Elisha, who was the spiritual son of Elijah, is saying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel, as they're coming to take Elijah up into heaven. And that's where Elisha, the spiritual son, is saying, the one thing that I want is a double portion of the anointing that's on your life. As you leave, I want to have what's on your life. And we knew that God was confirming as we move into the city that you're here to receive something of the anointing that's upon 
uh, this man's life and his, and his wife's life, the, the ministry that they have. There's something that they're going to be imparting into your life that you will then carry off into what God's called you to do. Making sense? And so then later, uh, we lived there for five years, and, uh, and then we bought the house next door, which was 214, because we saw that the owners went into foreclosure, they lost their house, and I just happened to be able to get in right before any of the other investors got there, and we bought the house straight from the bank, and we looked up 214, and sure enough, that's where Elisha, the spiritual son, takes the mantle that had fallen from Elijah as he went up into heaven, and he takes it, and he begins to exercise the power, the, the transference of something into his own life, and started to walk in what he... Uh, was called to do. It was right when we moved into that house that Ferris Cox, the, the lead pastor of the church, invited us on the full-time staff, and we started to exercise another degree of our calling within that church. We were there, remember how I said 18 to 36 months, and they thought we would be released to go plant? Well, 36 months went by, and that became four years, and four years became five years. Five years became six years. Six years became seven years. It was seven years that we were tested around this principle of honoring this couple. And as wonderful and, and wise and powerful as they were, they were also imperfect. Do you know leaders have clay feet? Just like the rest of us? They were imperfect, but God tested us to maintain the course of maintaining a posture where we could receive from them. And it was in July of 2008 where it had been exactly seven years, and uh, the next month was gonna be 808, August, the eighth month of the eighth year, 2008. Eight being the biblical number for new beginnings. So right at the end of seven years, which is the biblical number of completion, we were going to go into new beginnings, and it was at the next month in 808 that we went on a mission trip to South Africa, and that's where God spoke to us that we, he, we would be moving to South Africa and the whole everything in our lives shifted and began a whole new dimension of walking out things that we had once dreamed of. But in July of 2008, we were having a prayer meeting right before we went to South Africa and all that. And I was pacing in the back of the, uh, the, back of the church and, um, and I remember just having, it was like everyone else in the church was praying and I was just in the back and I just felt like a, a personal connection with God, and I felt the Lord lead me, almost like saying to me, what is it that you're actually asking me for? What is it that you want? And I remember it was like filtering down and saying, Lord, I have been here for seven years, trusting that there's something of an impartation, something that you're passing from them to us. Now, don't get weird, by the way. I'm not saying like their call was imparted to us. We have our own call, right? Like, I'm not like half them and half me now, right? Does that get weird? Like they lay hands and like they impart something of who they are on to me. No, I'm, I'm me. I'm proud to be me or happy to be me. But there is something of a transference of what they have on them that's given into what I have so that I carry and stand on their shoulders. And I was standing in the back of this prayer meeting and the Lord saying, what is it that you're asking? And I said, Lord, I've been here for seven years and I believe that you put in, in our hearts that we were supposed to receive from them. I'm asking you, just like Elisha did, for a double portion of, the, of, of that anointing. I'm, I'm asking you that we would receive and it would be complete. And in that moment, Tammy Cox, the, the wife of the, of the lead pastor of the church, 
had the microphone and she said, Paul Nichols. And I, and I look up and she says, I believe that the Lord is speaking to you. I believe that the Lord is saying that you are receiving something of a transference of, uh, of uh, like a double portion. And uh, can you come up here and get prayed for it? As I was praying that in the back. And it was literally from that moment when I started preaching in the church, something changed. It was like it went from the rookie budding preacher to be to like a bottle cap opening up and what was inside that God had put inside of me just being released. And it was instantly that we went to South Africa, God spoke, opened up doors, and we started to walk into fulfillment of God's call on our lives that we had once felt had been forgotten in the obscurity of the backside of the desert of being in Dublin, Georgia. What am I saying? There, it goes well with you when you honor at every level, whether it's your parents or it's people that God's put in your life as leaders, when you honor, it goes well with you. It's part of the way even of Jesus walking into his call. So if we can go on, Jesus, check this out, the age of 12, I mean, just before I even say this, our tendency is to want to short circuit the process of God in our lives. Every person in this room is called with a high calling. But the thing of when we begin to encounter Jesus, encounter his presence, encounter sweetness of relationship, and he begins to open up our eyes to see him, and in, as we see him, we begin to see things that we're called to do. And he starts to show us and give us desires for these things. You know what happens on the backside of that? He begins to do a deep work in you and me to prepare us to walk into that. He begins to change us and to, and to take us low so that he can bring us high. And even Jesus, at the age of 12, at the, during the Passover, he goes to Jerusalem. They're celebrating the feast. The family's going back to Nazareth, where they were from. At some point on the road, they're like, wait, where's Jesus? And then Mary and Joseph have to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple talking to the priests. And he's asking questions. And in that moment, Jesus says, did you not know that I would be in my father's house and doing my father's business? In that moment, Jesus, at the age of 12, evidently knew that he was the son of God. He was called to do the father's work. He probably knew that he would be preaching with power from heaven. He probably knew that he would have power to raise the dead and open blind eyes. He probably knew... I, if these people can see what's in me, they, I mean, they, they need to let me loose because I am the son of God. He was 12 years old. Do you know what he did next? It says, they did not understand what he was saying to them, and then Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. He went and he was obedient to a no-name carpenter building shelves and drawers and beds and couches and whatnot with wood for 18 years. During which time I'm sure he felt that that thing of knowing that he's the son of God felt like a distant dream. But he maintained obedience to his father until the appointed time and everything changed. And he walked into his calling. You and I are called. You have a calling and there's a process to walking out that calling. Honor and obedience is a part of that process. 
You follow. Whether it's uh, children with your parents or whatever the case may be. So the question for all of us is, who's called to lead you? Posture to receive and learn. For Minda and I, we've got people who are leading us in our lives. Tyron and Nicole Daniel, who lead the NCMI team, they're leading us. They're friends. We go out, we have coffee, we have meals together, we hang out. They're chummy. But in the context of them being friends, there's something that I have to, we have to turn our hearts and remember they're actually our leaders. And, and there are times where we ask them questions to speak into our lives, decisions that we're making, struggles that we have, whatever the case is. And there's something that is unlocked when you turn your heart to say, yes, Tyron is my friend. Yes, we talk about music together. Yes, we talk about stupid stuff or whatever. There's also something of God in him that God has called him to be a, take a role in my life and to take that out. And I've found that when I posture myself to receive, it's then that I start to receive. When he's just tiring, I usually don't hear what God wants to say through him to me. You follow? So how, if you're a child, how do you, how do you receive? How do you honor parents? Do listen and speak. So do would be that you do what you're asked to do. If I've asked Peter to wash the dishes, do the dishes, which he does, by the way. He's... He's very good at that. His job is to put the clean dishes away. John David puts the dirty dishes in. That's the way it works. They both do a very good job. And don't do what you're asked not to do. Listen is probably the most important part of actually relating to authority, relating, relating to parents or, or authority. Listen. When um, it's listening, it's posturing your heart to hear what they have to say. That's why when Jesus was transfigured, in the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw him in his glorified state up on a mountain. Some of you know the story. That's why the God, the Father, appeared and spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That's how you honor God through people is to hear what God's saying. And then finally, speak. And speaking would be speaking with respect in public and in private. So let's go on to fathers, shall we? Look at verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So I want to just say this again. Some of us don't have kids. But the reality is you will. And this is tr biblical training, simple, practical, biblical training on what it is to truly be a parent after the pattern of God. So if we can just hear this, but also I believe that there's, if we, just like my dad was so wonderful and I honor him and he loved me, he didn't do everything right. And so I have to go to the scripture to have the scriptures renew my mind to what a father should look like so that I can be the father I'm supposed to be. And you as well probably need to have your mind renewed on some level, all of us, to find out what a true father and a true leader looks like so that we can maybe be a father or at least exercise authority. You will notice in the scripture, in this verse, that Paul addresses fathers with regards to relating to children. Now the interesting thing is he doesn't say a thing about mothers. And if you read the rest of the passage, the rest of the chapter, he never mentions mothers and how they're supposed to relate to the children. 
Is that because moms don't have a real role to play? It's really just fathers? No. Moms have a huge role to play. It's to underscore the fact that fathers are the ones who are supposed to be taking the initial responsibility, to have the, the weight fall on them, and as they do that, moms slot in and find their place within the scope of his godly leadership. Moms are called to lead just like fathers, the family. Not just like, it's a different way, but it's, but it's, it's not like they don't have a role. But it's to underscore, dads, take your place. Be a man and lead and take responsibility. Not just authority, take the responsibility. The, and, and I'll say, as somebody who's lived outside of America, that the American idea of a father, through media, through commercials, through popular culture, has become basically this well-intentioned idiot who means well, but he's a doofus and he doesn't really know what he's doing, and everyone knows that mom is really the only person who knows what's going on. And I want to say that is not a picture of how God has called his sons to be in the way of being a father. If we can be noble and rise up and be responsible, be responsible, take the leadership. So let's look at this. First off is a protection of the hearts. It says exasperate, do not exasperate your children uh, or provoke your children to wrath. So what is that even talking about? Exasperate or provoking your children to wrath, what that basically means is don't provoke your kids to have anger in their heart that comes from the following things that if dads did their job well would not happen. And here it is. Being disciplined out of anger. A father or a mom cannot, we can't discipline children out of anger. So how many times have you seen that? Like a, like a parent's just like yelling at their kids and get back there. and blah, blah. That is not godly discipline. That's not how God does us. It's, it's so di- dis- being disciplined over and over out of anger, which is actually my, our parents being selfishly irritated with us rather than helping us develop and mature, over time produces wrath in our heart, anger, because we were never receiving the disciplinary love of our parents We've just been irritated and made them feel frustrated. And that's all we felt. So another thing would be not being heard or understood. Mom or dad just putting you in your place, not hearing you. You never have a chance to explain. You actually didn't do what they thought that they thought you were doing. You never even get to hear. They just put you in your place, be punished, and you're not given a place to actually speak. That produces wrath in the heart of a child. Another thing would be demanding behavior without speaking to the heart. Just demanding a child to to act right, to do right, but never taking the time to actually work why you're asking them to do this, to speak to their heart, to encourage them to see why this behavior is good for them, why it's good for the people around them, why, why they need to do what you're asking them to do, just telling them to do something, produces anger that builds up in the inside of that precious little heart of a child. And then finally would be not getting enough loving attention from dad. Dad goes to work, he makes money, he comes home, he sleeps, he is distant emotionally and otherwise and does whatever, but never taking the time to get loving attention from dad. Not just discipline attention from dad, not just being put in my place, being told, 
that he's, you, the child is the apple of that dad's eye. Every child needs to know. Even Jesus had to hear from his father before he entered into his calling, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Even Jesus needed the affirmation of a father to walk into what God had called. My boys need to hear the affirmation of their dad. Uh, and, and, and fathers in this room, moms in this room need to hear the affirmation um, from their parents. Those things produce anger in the heart of a child. It says, don't exasperate your children to, uh, uh, or provoke your children to wrath. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So training, the training, the training is four areas that we could say that in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 it says of Jesus the boy Jesus that he grew in four areas wisdom stature which is his body favor with God and favor with people my training of these boys is to develop them in those four areas while they're under my roof and under my care wisdom that I make sure that they're receiving any wisdom that mom and dad have that we can pass on, that they're also receiving an education, that, we're, that I'm not just letting mom walk and, and handle their education, that I'm involved. Anybody seen that happen where mom does all that stuff and dad doesn't? No, no, no. We oversee the wisdom stature, which means their physical development, that they're being healthy, that they're exercising, that they're eating good, that they're physically growing well, that they're, if they're sick, we're doing something. Favor with God would mean their spiritual relationship and actually helping them to give them everything that we have from our relationship with God to pass that on to them. And praise God, they've, they, Jesus is now their God, not just mom and dad's God. And uh, favor with man, that they're developing in social skills. How many of you have found that social skills are a rather important art in actually being successful in this world? And we, we like act as though it's not really a spiritual thing. Oh, no, no, no. If you want to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you need to know how to relate to them socially. And mom and dad are responsible to not just let their child be who they are. Oh, that's just how they are. I had, uh, we've got friends in South Africa. They, they have like, what, four kids? Two girls, two boys. And uh, one of those girls, actually both the girls, were strong-willed. And... Uh, and, and stubborn and insubordinate. And a lot of parents could say, oh, well, she's just strong-willed. We're going to encourage her in this thing that God, well, yeah, be strong-willed. That's cool if God's given you a strength of will, but not insubordination, not disrespect. And there were some occasions where they were being disrespectful and being disobedient to their parents, and I saw the father hold the line and punish this one girl. I think, I think she had thrown her nuts and her, and her raisins on the floor. Ever seen like a three-year-old do that? She threw them in defiance. And the, and, and the dad said, you got, better pick those up. And, and then, then the showdown happened. Where the daughter was looking at the father, the father was looking at the daughter, and he disciplined her. And then he took her back. Okay, pick them up. Another showdown. I think this happened like 10 or 12 times loved her, wasn't like just angry with her, loved her, but would not allow disrespect and disobedience to dominate and become a bad pattern of behavior. Those two girls today are strong. They are amazing. You can't see them and not love them. 
They are like the most precious. They're some of our best friends, that family. Uh, but they've learned to use their strength and to be harnessed for loving people, not just having a strong will to do what they want and being, and being uh, selfish. So to create those boundaries, and if you've never been a parent, what I just described is probably the hardest thing. Easy thing is to say, oh, it's just the way they are. We're going to let them be. Well, after they resist you two or three times, just let them be. Let it slide. No, hold that line. It's for love. Because if I can maybe say another example, my, my parents is another example. We used to, because I was four years younger than my other siblings, four and five years younger, they wanted to watch movies as a family movie night that probably weren't so good for me. And we, wa- we would rent some uh, R-rated movies on Friday nights. And, uh, um, and in the 1980s, R-rated movies, PG movies, had, were filled with sexual innuendo. So here I am, seven years old, and seeing like frontal nudity, seeing perverse sexual scenes in, in movies that are just kind of, oh, it's just in the movies, it's just the way it is. Never once did I have training and instruction on proper sexuality. And when I became a Christian, later on in life, God had to come in and undo a whole bunch of crud that had I had parental instruction in that area, rather than just opening up the door to let whatever into my life, I would have never had to undo all that crud. And even though I'm so happy to have a testimony and Jesus has brought me through the amazing release of pornographic addiction and all that kind of stuff, the reality is a door was opened up in my life. So we don't just allow whatever into our kids' lives, create boundaries so that they don't have to fight, you fight wars so that they don't have to when they start following God. Does that make sense? You take the responsibility. So training and instruction. What's instruction? That would be warning. That would be mild rebuke. I just talked about all that stuff. And then finally, it says the instruction of the Lord. I just want to point this out, that this instruction that we're giving is not of Paul. It's not of the instruction of Sharon or who, you know, whoever else, maybe a mom or a dad. This is out, my responsibility, your responsibility, whoever, as a father, as a leader, as a mom, is to give the instruction of the Lord. And how do we know that the instruction that we're giving is not just ours, it's of the Lord? It's because we're receiving instruction ourselves from him and from whoever is called to, to give us instruction into our lives. So to lead best, we have to follow. Follow Jesus, follow our own, so that we, our own leadership so that we can then go and provide loving, good, humble leadership to others. And the last thing that we just want to say is, and this is such a huge thing, is use authority and actually lead. I knew a dad in South Africa, and he found his son had been prescribed medicine, and both of the parents felt like they needed to take him to a doctor. The doctor prescribed medicine. He was supposed to be taking it, and months later, he found out that every day he had been faking taking it and had just been tossing it. Now, if the child actually needed that medicine, it would be right to lovingly get into the child's heart to help them connect with why they need the medicine and all that kind of thing. But rather, this dad just said, 
you know what, we're not going to have you take that medicine. And the reason is because I don't want you to be in a position where you're going to be lying to me. So he assumed that there was no way of leading the child to actually do the right thing. He just assumed that he's not going to be able to do that, so he'll just abdicate and let the child make the decision. And so, and I remember thinking, that sounds, like I hear what you're saying, I didn't actually say this to him, that sounds right, but the reality is you're letting your son, who's 11 years old, call the shots on what a doctor and his parents are saying to defy what the doctor and his parents are saying to do need to just let him do whatever he wants. You need to lead him, like get to his heart, help encourage him to do the right thing. Don't just assume that he never will. And so in leadership, lead. Don't abdicate. Actually, uh, actually lead. I have found that people who have seen parents be domineering with their children and produce a set of negative circumstances in the hearts of their child they try to undo that by swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side to where parents don't actually lead. They just let their kids do whatever. And you see it often. All that does is replace this bad set of circumstances with a different kind. We don't need to let the pendulum swing all the way here. We need to lead lovingly. That is the solution. So if we can see that happening in, in the families of God's people in the city, this biblical order, we can see healing, we can see so much good for this rising generation to grow up in something of health and security that they can go and be who God's called them to be. So I just want to say, next week, we're going to finish this off, at least this kind of Ephesians 5 through 6. We're probably going to get into spiritual armor the following week, which I'm not going to teach on, but we'll probably do that. But as far as like the very practical instructions, it's going to be workplace relationships, relating to people on the job, bosses and, and juniors and all that. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to want to ask us to, to pray. Do you want to share something? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, before, before Paul prays, it was just on my heart as Paul was sharing today. You know, he did say, as we looked at these scriptures in the Word today, it's applicable to any of us who are parents, who may be parents. It's applicable, uh, I think, just in the context of, can we turn it down a little because there's feedback? It's applicable just in the context of creating a church family culture that we're all on the same page. But what was on my heart a few times as Paul was sharing is that I know that some of us in backgrounds that we've experienced did not have the kind of parenting that Paul described. And you may say, okay, it's great for me to know the kind of parent I need to be one day if I become a parent, but what do I do with these broken places in my life that have never had the opportunity to be formed by good parents? Yeah. And I just want to say that we've all experienced that on differing levels, right? Because we've all had imperfect parents. But some maybe really have suffered in that area particularly. And I just want to encourage you that, first of all, God is our Father, so we get to be parented by him in this way. And as we look at these scriptures, it helps us to position our hearts to know how to receive that from him as our father. Second of all, in the context of loving church family, we're a family. Yeah. And God will touch those areas in your life that maybe you didn't receive these things, and you will receive that from this family. Yeah. And God will heal your life. So don't be afraid to open your heart 
to receive those things that maybe you never got. And even if you're an adult, God can still develop those areas that maybe are underdeveloped today. And you will turn around and you will be a parent in the lives of others who haven't had that as well. So don't feel left out. Don't feel like it doesn't apply to you. We're all on the same playing field here. And the Word of God is the Word of God is the Word of God. And it works in our lives no matter what our natural circumstances have been. So I just want you to feel encouraged by that. You don't have to miss out on anything.